Hi, welcome to Canna Confidential. I'm your host, Jewel Peter, and on this podcast, we discuss the state of the cannabis industry, as well as any insights we feel might be valuable to our listeners. So without further ado, we'll get to the content. Thanks for joining us. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us. Welcome back to our latest episode of Canna Confidential. I'm joined again today by the microcultivator, Cheryl, uh, the owner of Kinhana Cannabis. So as always, we're going to discuss Canadian updates on legalized cannabis. We're going to get into the U.S. market because it looks like there'll be some legalization happening sooner rather than later. And then we're going to touch on global updates for the cannabis industry. So to get us started, we're going to kick things off in British Columbia. British Columbia's monthly sales of the federal excise duty on adult-use cannabis hit a fresh high as the province continued to execute its plan to greatly expand the number of privately and publicly owned marijuana stores. For December, British Columbia's share of the federal excise tax was $2.5 million Canadian dollars, the province's highest monthly total since cannabis was legalized in late 2018. The sum represents a 44% increase over the previous month's $1.7 million Canadian. The province's share of the federal duty was $10 million for all of 2019, according to updated data released in May. December's record tax revenue is largely attributed to new store openings. The new stores represent the biggest opportunity for one-time excise gains as retailers stock their shelves for the first time, forcing the provincial wholesaler to replenish its inventory. The excise tax is payable by licensed cannabis producers when product is delivered to a purchaser. In this case, the liquor distribution branch Roughly 80 cannabis stores opened their doors between October and December of 2019. The province's share is set to rise further in the coming months. More than 100 stores opened between January and May of this year. Shipments of cannabis 2.0 products, such as edibles and vape pens, should also give a boost to excise duty payments. BC is among a number of provinces with no formal deal in place with municipalities to share monthly proceeds from the federal excise tax. What this demonstrates for us, and that article was from MJ Biz Daily, what this demonstrates is that there is an increase hand over hand as we move into the legal market. So while last year's numbers were good, this year's numbers will be better. While last month's numbers were good, next month's numbers will be better. And this is what we're going to see in every market that legalizes, not just Canada, It's going to be an ongoing unfolding, an ongoing increase, and eventually it will hit some point of leveling off, but we are nowhere near that yet in Canada. To see 80 stores open between October and December and then another 100 open between January and May is amazing. It is, and when you think about... I think we talked about it a few episodes ago about how many people need to be in an area for for them to open a store. So to think that a hundred new stores are able to open even is amazing. Well, that's, that's six months, maybe eight months, but from the tail end of 2019 until May of this year, that's, um, that's phenomenal growth. That's straight up growth. 
And I know that there's been a lot of critics of the way that Canada has legalized, and I even saw an article that I didn't include today that said cannabis, or that Canada missed the market and their chance at being huge in the cannabis industry, but I think that that's complete and utter crap, because they're always going to be ahead of the curve now, at least for the next 10 years. Well, that's like, that's just somebody's opinion. And there are opinions that I read when I'm doing research for this program that uh, I just don't believe the source, and so I don't include it in my notes. And you can find information to support any opinion. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is that Canada and Uruguay are going to be ahead for the foreseeable future just because they did it first. Yes. Yeah. I have an article from Mugglehead. It's hard not to think of the biggest scandal to hit the industry to date and the company behind it, CanTrust Holdings. But recent rule changes made by our Supreme Federal Regulator, Health Canada, give us another means for reflection. What if the CanTrust debacle and the related hit to the industry's legal weed sector never happened? As of May 12, 2020, license holders are no longer required to submit an amendment to add or change an operations area within an approved building. So if you have the perimeter of your building established and Health Canada is happy with that, changing interior walls or turning a a bedroom into a flower room, you no longer, as of May 12th, have to have approval for that. So under today's rules, the discovery of five previously unlicensed hidden rooms at CanTrust facility in Pelham, Ontario last June would not have resulted in the company being deemed non-compliant and having its key licenses suspended. The first part of looking at the recent changes is considering what would have happened if the new rules were in place at the time, former Health Canada Senior Compliance Officer Sherry Boudram says. Now everyone would agree that no, they wouldn't have been strung out to dry, especially to the degree that they were. She says with a caveat that rooms were otherwise compliant, as CanTrust did claim. Reports of false walls to hide the non-compliant areas hurt the company's credibility even more. The second part is looking at the operational changes and what's going on to happen with CanTrust moving forward. Since the incident, anyone following CanTrust's news cycle will be aware of an ongoing process the company is undergoing to reinstate its license, which has involved the company destroying tens of millions of dollars in assets and inventory. I believe it was $77 million in cannabis that they had to destroy. The process has also involved changes to their management structure, as well as other downstream changes that need to happen with staff and lower level operating procedures. So it, it just seems that this is what we were just talking about. The compliance part is the, the growing, the growing pains and changing the rules the way they need to be done. We all know that coming through the process a couple of years ago was far more difficult than it is now. And it will continue to get easier and easier. The people who went through at the first opportunity are undoubtedly going to have had a much harder time than people that come later. It's just like that expression, we stand on the shoulders of the people who came before us because they had to put in a significant amount of work in whatever industry it was at that point in time. Because legal cannabis is so new, 
the first people out of the gate are going to have to work through the growing pains of even the government figuring out what legalization is going to look like. And while CanTrust was, um, I don't know if it was by choice or if it was forced upon them to close their doors and and not, um, they're publicly traded, but I believe that they are going to get reinstated and continue on business. As it should be, if you're going to change the regulations after grilling somebody so intensely. Yes. So now we'll go on to an article from MJ Biz Daily, and that is that Korea is buying into the Canadian cannabis industry. So South Korea's Sovereign Wealth Fund bought up three Canadian cannabis stocks as they dipped to 52-week lows in the first quarter of 2020, so the lowest in a year. Though the value of the cannabis holdings is a modest $8 million, it is the latest sign the stigma associated with the legal industry is slowly eroding in international finance circles. Seoul-based Korea Investment Corp. added federally licensed Ontario producer Kronos Group to its portfolio, according to a disclosure filed with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. The Sovereign Wealth Fund took on 45,800 Kronos shares, worth roughly $257,000. The KIC also increased its positions in Alberta-based Aurora Cannabis and Ontario-headquartered Canopy Growth. The fund added 260,541 shares of Aurora in the first three months of this year, bringing its holdings to 286,928 shares. Its position in Canopy edged up by 17,400 shares, ending the period with almost 500,000 shares of the company. The net asset value of Korea Investment Corp's portfolio surpassed $150 billion in 2019. And last week, we talked about how the U.S. had a private equity firm that bought up a cannabis CBD company that was based in the UK. So as we see more investment companies getting into the cannabis industry, that's a good sign because it means that it's being normalized. And they did this with the real estate industry several years ago as well. They just bought up huge amounts of property and very lucrative property in some big cities and they just parked the money there and didn't do anything with it. The properties still sit vacant. And it's the same kind of thing here. They're seeing the writing on the wall that cannabis is going to be the absolute next big thing. It's going to be the next alcohol when alcohol was legalized. So that's just another example of how we're seeing that come to light. And they're doing it in Canada because it's a legal market. So I'm, while surprised it's not, to see, I'm surprised to see it coming out of uh, South Korea. That's what it's, I was just going to say. So while it's not legal there, apparently it's legal in Korea to buy stock in a legal industry somewhere especially else. Especially when it's a government fund. It must be like their retirement, the equivalent of ours. RSPs or something like that that is run by their government that uh, for them to stretch out and buy cannabis stocks is pretty amazing. And again, I think it comes down to the fact that it's legal here, but it's, it's one of those caveats that you see in finance all the time where just because something is illegal, it's, it's almost like they can get past the red tape if they're investing in a publicly traded company that happens to be legal somewhere else. Mm -hmm. 
I have an interesting article here also from Mugglehead. Anybody that's interested in starting growing outside more than your four plants, you'll find this extremely interesting. As outdoor cannabis licenses nearly doubled in 2020, growers say COVID-19 won't hold back the coming planting season. And some analysts are predicting the flood of low-cost production will create an oversupply scenario in Canada's weed market. Last year, Health Canada awarded outdoor licenses to a small crop of cannabis companies with just enough lead time before the spring planting season. But the federal agency told Mugglehead that as of April 30th, it had issued 363 cannabis licenses in total. 46 of them authorized companies to grow weed outdoors. 20 of the outdoor licenses, 20, almost half, were granted in 2020. Of the 46 licenses that include outdoor cultivation, 28 are for standard cultivation, 15 are for micro-cultivation, and 3 are for nurseries. Canada's most recent statistics show that licensed outdoor canopy exceeded indoor for the first time last November by 450,000 square meters. The agency says it still has 70 applications in, in queue that include outdoor areas. I love it when they say, when they speculate that there will be a, quote, oversupply scenario in the weed market because it's just absolutely ludicrous to think about. The fact that Canada is such a huge country with such a small population and that exporting is happening all around the world. We're going to get into an article later about Uruguay exporting. So there is no point of saturation, especially when you consider exporting as an option in places where medical cannabis is legal or cannabis CBD, THC blends are legal for medical use. There's just no scenario right now where an oversupply globally is possible. There's just not enough cultivators in the world doing it. As you go into... Uh the Health Canada application process, there is a, a, a portion there where you can apply to be an exporter. And let's face it, I mean, if these other countries aren't allowing their, uh, their citizens to cultivate, it's got to come from somewhere. So if, health, if Canada, Health Canada, is supporting the process of exporting cannabis, that opens the world. That's 9 billion people that can be buying Cannabis. And I don't, Canada itself just couldn't keep up with that. No. Even if we converted every field to growing cannabis, like it just wouldn't happen. It wouldn't happen. Maybe, maybe they're stating that there could be an oversupply of outdoor grown cannabis. But again, that could all be used for oil. That could be used for tinctures. You could make it into hash or rosin. It, just because it's not indoor premium quote unquote cannabis doesn't mean that there's going to be an oversupply of it. There's a real market separation there. There are uh, consumers that don't want the outdoor stuff because it's, you know, had ladybugs crawling all over it and bird poop on it, and it's, you know, subjected to the elements. But there are those that that's what they want. They want that organic taste. They want that outdoor um, taste to their cannabis and don't want the indoor stuff where it's highly managed and manicured there are people that would prefer to have the highly managed and manicured cannabis as opposed to outdoor stuff it should be noted if you are thinking about going into the market though 
that it costs between, depending on your nutrients and the province that you live in, in Ontario, uh, power sources are quite expensive. So if you're cultivating indoor, you're aiming about a dollar and a half, sometimes as much as a dollar seventy-five per gram. To grow outdoor, where Mother Nature is providing the, the sunlight and the wind and all the things that you need, water, um, cost per gram can be as low as five cents a gram. And then you've got the people in the middle who they don't care if it's indoor or it's outdoor, they medically need it for controlling their pain or controlling the side effects of something like seizures. And so they don't care if it's indoor or outdoor, they yeah. just need the product. Yeah. Now we're going to move on to the U.S. And our first article is from High Times regarding Humboldt Heritage canceling M&A plans. High Times Holding Corp. is putting its cultivation and processing plans on hold. The company known for publishing High Times magazine announced in March that it agreed to buy Humboldt Heritage. As of May 15th, the deal has been canceled. High Times touted the deal as a key component to its growth. The publishing company's nixing of the agreement marks yet another setback. On May 6, the Los Angeles-based company announced its latest CEO shift, bringing on retail executive Peter Horvath to head the brand. Horvath replaced Stormy Simon, who had been in the position for only four months. During that period, Simon announced plans to run for Congress in Utah on a pro-cannabis platform. High Times seemingly wanted someone with retail expertise to help transition the company from publisher to retailer. Horvath previously served as Chief Commercialization Officer at American Eagle Outfitters Incorporated and Chief Operating Officer of Victoria's Secret. I was sort of wondering at what point some of the really big cannabis players who've been involved in the industry, legal or illegal, for a long time, we're going to start white labeling some kind of brand. And the fact that High Times has now pulled out of this deal, it has me wondering if they're going to skip merging themselves with any brand, whether it be Humboldt Heritage or something otherwise, and they're just going to go straight into building High Times brand cannabis. And they could do that by... Uh, white labeling somebody else's just buying from other growers and and branding without having to buy humbled heritage the other thing they could do is truly build a brand from the ground up by the the farm or by a facility indoors and start the cultivation from the very beginning high times has the budget to do that so it, it really seems like they had some reformulating of thinking and they're going to go in a different direction. And I'm very much looking forward to seeing how they're going to do it because I just don't see a reality where High Times doesn't have their own cannabis facility or brand. (laughs) kind of amazing that they're not already in the game. It is. When you think about the fact that they've been around since before legalization happened anywhere, you would have thought that they would have been one of the first people to get involved Jump in on that a cultivation, especially sure. in California. Yeah. But for whatever reason, they have held off. So it's it's going to be interesting. I think probably before the end of the year, we'll see something happening. And the fact that they have brought on a retailer or a, uh, a CEO who's going to shift the company into 
retail as well as publishing, I think that's giving us an indication of the fact that they're going to be building a brand, not just merging with another brand. Yeah. Well, I would think if the High Times came along um, to knock on your door, Humboldt Heritage would just sort of erase their name from the platform and it would become High Times. They, there would be no reason to hold on to Humboldt Heritage. Right, but it would always be the history. Yeah. There would always be, oh, it was this other thing and then it became High Times Cannabis. And if it were my brand, I would want it to be starting from zero. I wouldn't want to be taking over someone else's. I guess the only thing they can say there is something like, you know, we've been in business since 1955 or something like that. It's But High um, Times has already been in business for so long yeah. that they have their own brand yeah. credibility. Yeah. I have an article here that uh, I find extremely interesting from MJ Biz Daily. Um, have you ever wondered the difference between THC levels or uh, choosing edibles over vaping or vape pens over joints? Um, MJ BizCon is going to put on a webinar to look at product preferences among marijuana consumers. Product preferences among the consumers across the country will be the focus of a free webinar that Marijuana Business Daily is presenting on Tuesday, May 26. MJ Biz Daily's data editor, Ellie McVeigh, will speak with Nancy Whiteman, the CEO of Boulder, Colorado-based edibles company Wana Brands, and Liz Connors, a data analyst for the Seattle-based headset. The three will discuss data and insights regarding shifts in what consumers are looking for in products, ranging from the THC levels to the choice between edibles and vaping. The webinar will also offer insights in how product sales have shifted since March. Sales volumes amid the COVID-19 pandemic have varied from state to state, and they'll cover all of that in the webinar. If you're interested, Google MJ Biz Daily webinar, and it will begin on at May 26th at 1 p.m. That's really interesting that they're providing a webinar because people can't necessarily get out or go to a convention right now or go to any sort of gathering where people could be talking about this sort of thing. It's so, one thing to talk about a um, this kind of information with a bud tender at a dispensary. It's a whole different thing when you've got analysts that have consumed the data and really taken it apart with a, with a microscope to present to the public exactly what's going on out there. I also find it interesting that it is open to the public and that it's not a B2B sort of conference that is within the industry, that they're sharing all of this data crunching with just the public at large. It makes me think that there must be some marketing angle to it as well. But I guess the consumer base of MJ Biz Daily is business. Uh, yeah, for sure. So a lot of the people watching will be people in the industry or wanting to get into the industry, and that will be valuable information to know. I have thought that there's going to be a segue between THC and CBD where we're going to see a lot of people gravita gravitating more to a an equal blend of THC and CBD where the psychoactive effects are very much muted, but you're getting a lot of the pain-relieving, anti-inflammatory antimicrobial, all the other benefits of cannabis without the quote-unquote high. 
I think I'm, if I'm not too busy and the girl, I'm going to try to, to uh, participate in that. Yeah, I think anyone who is available on Tuesday the 26th at 1 p.m. Eastern Time or 10 a.m. Pacific Time should definitely tune in. Our next article is from Benzinga regarding Trueleaf hitting the milestone of opening their 50th and largest U.S. dispensary. Trueleaf Cannabis Corp has cut the ribbon on its latest store, marking its 50th retail location. According to the Thursday press release, the newly opened dispensary is located in Daytona Beach, Florida, bringing the company's total store count for Florida to 48. Located at 812 West International Speedway Boulevard, Trueleaf's newest location is one of the company's largest. It spans about 6,000 square feet and includes about 1,500 square feet of showroom space and 14 selling points. Our focus is on expanding access throughout the state of Florida and providing patients a safe, reliable way to get the medication they rely on. With the uncertainty of the past several months, we have remained dedicated to patients and will continue to do so. That's according to True Leave CEO Kim Rivers. According to the Office of Medical Marijuana Use, the number of patients in Florida that have an active ID card to purchase cannabis is approaching 340,000. There are also some 2,500 ordering physicians in the state. True Leaves said they are following CDC guidelines for social distancing while offering customers home delivery, curbside pickup, and in-store pickup. While patients are able to come and shop in-store, we also encourage patients to view our online catalog for ordering, offering both in-store pickup options and direct home delivery available statewide, Rivers added. On the opening day, the company offered a 25% in-store discount at the Daytona Beach Dispensary. A month ago, the company opened a dispensary in the neighboring Titusville. Earlier this week, Trulieve reported its first quarter financial and operational update, witnessing revenue rising by 116% year-over-year to $96.1 million. That is amazing. The fact that there are 50 cannabis stores in the Florida area uh, because they have 48 in Florida so I'm assuming the other two are in other medically legal states but the fact that Florida has 48 cannabis dispensaries is amazing and 48 of them that are doing that well like sometimes companies will open and then realize it's not the right market and pull back out but for them to have a 116% increase year over year is amazing and I don't think that, we've said it before, there's all the data to demonstrate that the cannabis industry is being positively impacted by the pandemic situation. And I, I think that's part of what can be attributed here. I mean, surely they have grown a great deal on their own, but some of those new p- patients of the 340,000 active ID cards that are in Florida, some of those will be new patients who have happened to get their card in the last five months. About a year ago, I started following the cannabis market in Florida because I toyed with getting a license there. And to see that it's up to 340,000, I think a year ago when I started following, and every Friday I get an email from the, uh, the office saying what's happening in the cannabis market. Uh, I think when I started following it about a year ago, it was under 200,000. And to have grown 140,000 plus 
in less than a year is is remarkable yeah. and i think it really demonstrates you know when you look at these pockets of legalization that are happening whether it's california or michigan or florida wherever you're looking they're they're the bright spots right now those are the spots where there's revenue coming in there's a heavy increase in tax dollars because of the cannabis industry and it it's showing that legalization federally would only benefit the U.S. Well, and I keep harping on the unemployment number that that would decrease dramatically if they would just legalize. So now our next article is from Marijuana Moment regarding legalization in New York. And the New York governor says, I believe we will. The governor of New York said on Friday that while the legislature hasn't been able to pass a marijuana legalization bill so far during this legislative session, he feels the issue will end up getting over the finish line sooner or later. Governor Andrew Cuomo was asked during a coronavirus update briefing why the state hadn't legalized cannabis as a way to generate revenue for economic relief rather than depend on federal funds. He seemed to take issue with the suggestion, arguing that it's the federal government's, quote, obligation as part of managing this national pandemic that they provide financial relief to state and local governments just the way they took care of the big corporations, end quote. On marijuana reform, he said, quote, I support legalization of marijuana passage. I've worked very hard to pass it. I believe we will, but we didn't get it done this last session because it's a complicated issue and it has to be done in a comprehensive way, he said. Assembly Majority Leader Crystal People Stokes made similar comments when asked about the policy last month, though she seemed to signal that she laid partial blame for the failure to enact reform on the governor prioritizing other issues during the pandemic. Quote, I would like to see the legalization of adult-use cannabis happen. I am still a proponent of that, she said at the time, adding that she personally would like to see it move forward this year. I can't commit that it will because it's not my call whether or not things go on the floor, but I do know that it's something I'm pushing for, she said. In terms of approving legalization through the budget, the majority leader said, I think the governor didn't want it to be right then because of shirting legislative priorities. Lawmakers and reform advocates had hopes the legalization could be accomplished through the annual budget and they held out hope all the way up until the April deadline, but it didn't happen. And I don't think that there's anything that can be said about this except that it is going to happen and it very likely would have happened had COVID not interfered and and presented new challenges that had to be dealt with on a very time-sensitive basis. Especially for New York State. They really got pounded with the pandemic. And the governor has his hands full trying to manage that. And while cannabis revenue would help the situation quite a bit, legalization is still very much on the table. And so there's nothing to say that it's not going to have a highly positive and very beneficial impact in a very short period of time. So now we're going to move on to our global articles for today. Our first article comes from Radio Free Europe. According to Not So Green being on the other side, how a Russian tycoon's $165 million U.S. cannabis bet went up in smoke. 
When the authorities in Plumas County, California, inspected a new commercial hemp plantation in April 2019, they were so alarmed by what they found that they sought to impose a temporary moratorium on the emerging industry in unincorporated local towns. Greeted at the property by two armed guards with false identification papers, the local authorities found one of, if not the largest, hemp operation in the state of California, with trees cut down and carted away, greenhouses going up, and drainage being built without permits, they said at a public hearing two months later. Representatives of Genius Fund, the cannabis-focused startup based in Los Angeles that was developing the roughly 1,000-acre spot, the size of about 750 American football fields, told Plumas authorities that they were cooperating with two research universities tapping a California legal loophole that would allow them to begin operations without all the permitting. However, Plumas officials said they contacted the universities and neither confirmed a relationship with the company. Shortly thereafter, Genius Fund left the county. It demonstrates a flagrant disregard for our county, our rules, our regulations, our building codes, then Plumas County Sheriff Greg Hagwood told the June 4, 2019 hearing. To engage in something this flagrant speaks to a frame of mind, and I find it very disturbing and I find it unacceptable. That's a direct quote from the sheriff. It was just the start of the troubles for Genius Fund that they would face over the next 12 months as it aggressively sought to carve out a chunk of the multi-billion dollar California cannabis market. Today, the phones at the company are silent, corporate emails bounce, the company's website is down, and counterparties are starting to sue. So what's happening here is that a lot of industries that are happening really quickly see things like this, especially when you start referencing terms like startups, which is what they termed genius fund, that there's a lot of money coming in from offshore and they get involved without following all the regulations and doing things the proper way within the lines of the red tape. And then this is what happened. Things go up in smoke. They spend all this money to do things, but they don't do it in the correct way. And this is what it comes down to. But it's very interesting to see that people outside of the U.S. are so desirous to get into the cannabis market in such a big way that they're willing to spend something like $165 million just to let it all go up in smoke for simply not following regulation guidelines. And you would think that if a gentleman had amassed $165 million that he could just put out there like that, that he would be smart enough to know the people that he's dealing with. He would be smart enough to do a little research and find out if these guys do have their permits in place, if these guys do have their you know, uh, licenses and regulations followed. And it, that's just, I don't know, that's just kind of surprising. It is surprising, but I think when things are moving very quickly, this is, it's not exactly the same, but it's somewhat similar to people who invested in the big Canadian corporate cannabis companies and then the stocks tanked because of false reporting and overinflating of of the valuation. Mm -hmm. So it's not nearly that bad, but it is somewhat similar in a sense that when things start moving very fast in an industry and there's a lot of money changing hands, sometimes people play a little too fast and a little too loose. Right. And our final article today, Cheryl? I have an article about Jamaica. So if you're interested in the market for um, cannabis in Jamaica, this is for you. Jamaica published details about the 
business continuity plan it has implemented to maintain a functional and expanding cannabis industry amid the COVID-19 pandemic. Part of the plan involves the Cannabis Licensing Authority using remote means to monitor harvests and other medical cannabis operations. This is to allow for the continuity of activities on licensed sites, which is necessary for the sustainable development of the industry. Whilst ensuring compliance during the COVID-19 pandemic, the CLA noted in a news release. The CLA also unveiled interim guidelines allowing herb houses to sell medical and therapeutic cannabis online. The regulatory body worked with the Ministry of Industry, Commerce and Agriculture and Fisheries to formulate the guidelines as a public health measure amid the coronavirus pandemic. CLA Director of Enforcement, Faith Graham, said the regulatory body is cognizant of the far-reaching effects of the pandemic and remains vigilant and proactive in taking steps to secure the industry. The agency stressed that it continues to make appropriate adjustments where necessary to allow for the preservation of the integrity and continuity of Jamaica's medical cannabis industry. Other aspects that they outlined our stricter visitor policy where only certain people may enter the CLA's office, online meetings to facilitate the application processes, implementation of a lobby drop box for the receipt of documents. This is no different than what Canada has, has implemented also in the regulations that they're following with Health Canada, uh, where the visitations that they're supposed to be making, they're, we're being asked to do it by video and just send a video in. It, they're trying to protect themselves, the employees of the grows, and the general public by offering these other options in, in being able to keep your business going, but still um, follow the guidelines for the pandemic. And that's just part of adjusting to where the industry is at right now. And when you're a small cultivation, and it's easy to do that. It's easy to send in a video and, and check all those boxes. When you're a larger cultivation, it might be a little bit more difficult or time-consuming, I guess you could say, to sort of go through all of these different steps to do things in the new way. But it's so beneficial to keep everybody involved at a distance so that everyone's safe and then business can continue on. Well, as we've learned in the GROW, just because there's a pandemic doesn't mean the plans stop growing. They, they will just continue on doing what they do. And as the caretaker, you have to maintain that level of, of security, but also the level of the quality of the product you're trying to put out. And that's so true that they're plants. They don't recognize a pandemic. They just continue just on Just keep growing. doing what they do. Yeah. And it's good that these governmental agencies have recognized that that's something that is going to happen and they've made adjustments. Right. And I said that that would be our last article, but I mentioned this article early on, so I feel like it's really important to touch on, and that's that Uruguay exported the largest ever shipment of high THC flour, but the buyer remains a mystery. A shipment of medical cannabis exported from Uruguay in late 2019 to Europe is raising eyebrows, both about the buyer's identity and the cargo's sheer size. The 1,000 kilograms, so 2,200 roughly pounds, was the weight of the shipment, and it was high THC cannabis flour that was legally exported from Uruguay to Portugal late last year. 
This is according to Uruguayan customs documents viewed by the source of this article, which is Marijuana Business Daily. By comparison, Germany, the largest importer of medical cannabis flower in the world, imported an average of 542 kilograms per month in 2019 for pharmacy dispensing. The Uruguayan shipment, likely the biggest ever single international shipment of medical cannabis, medical meaning legal, symbolizes an increasingly global medicinal marijuana industry that's still in its infancy. Yet the importer, purpose, and financial destination of the product remains largely a secret. The customs documents showed the Uruguay-based licensed producer Fotmore Life Sciences exported the flower to Portugal in exchange for $3.2 million, including cost, insurance, and freight. The Portuguese importer is not identified in the document dated on October 23, 2019. The Portuguese regulator agency responsible for authorizing imports said information that MJ Biz Daily requested is, quote, not public. Portugal has a regulatory framework that allows domestic sales of medical cannabis, but no Portuguese companies has been able to get the necessary approval to start selling to domestic patients. For that reason, it seems all the more unusual that the high THC flower was shipped to another European nation late last year, unless it was destined for another country. Importer being unknown, according to the Fotmore CEO, Jordan Lewis, he previously acknowledged just over one metric ton of THC-rich dried flour was exported to an EU country. However, the company's marketing director told MJ Biz Daily in February that it cannot disclose the name of the buyer. Informed, the Portuguese regulatory agency responsible for approving imports and exports of narcotics also said it would not identify the buyer. The specific information sought is not public, falling within the scope of the activities of the licensed company, according to the agency when MJ Biz Daily asked for the information. Portuguese licensed cannabis producers are the most likely candidates to have imported the flower from Uruguay because their permits include import and export. But the importer also could have been, for instance, a non-cannabis-related laboratory needing product for research purposes. However, it's unlikely such a large quantity was imported just for research. This is so interesting because it sort of smacks of the illegal market. The fact that there's not a lot of disclosure happening. This definitely wouldn't be legal in regards to Canadian exports. There would have to be a lot more clarity and transparency in terms of both parties involved. So it's very interesting to see that governmental agencies are involved in this shipment of the largest, quote, uh, import or export of medical cannabis flower in the world, but that there's still so little upfront information is just really interesting and makes it a very fascinating article. I think that that's extremely interesting. As an, if I were the import, as an exporter, I want everybody to know that I'm sending 2,200 pounds of cannabis to Portugal. But as the person on the other end purchasing that 2,200 pounds of cannabis from Uruguay, I don't think I want anybody to know who I am and what I'm doing with that cannabis. So that's just almost like walking around with a target on your back to say that you've purchased 2,200 pounds of cannabis. And I would guess that they know who it is. It's all documented. It's just not public information. Mm -hmm. And you're right. I'm 
it might become clear later on this year as a certain amount of cannabis shows up in dispensaries in Portugal where exactly that mm-hmm. came from. Mm-hmm. But perhaps you're right in that the company doesn't want to disclose what they're doing or where they're getting their their Yeah, they do, well, they don't from. want the publicity, right? And it and uh, you know, it just presents a security issue. Absolutely. Well, that's our show for today. I hope that you have found this information useful. As always, if you have any questions, feel free to send us an email or to reach out to us. We would be happy to chat about the cannabis industry. Cheryl, thanks so much for being here today. My pleasure. And everyone, thanks so much for listening. We'll see you in the next episode. Have you met Mary Jane? Thanks so much for listening. If you have any questions about today's topics or the cannabis industry in general, then please send an email to admin at kinhana.com. That's K-I-N-H-A-N-A.com.